Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you? I'm feeling really good. Um, The sun is out, so everything's fine, basically. (laughs) I'm working on my fourth chapter at the moment, which is partly a love letter to this particular stretch of the southwest coastal path that I walked in Cornwall a few years ago, just after I handed in my thesis. And it was a time of a lot of optimism. And to get back in that headspace, I'm covering my desk in photographs of the bright blue sea and the soft green land and So I'm there in my brain. So yeah, I'm in a good place and I'm imagining good things and it feels nice. How about you? Well, I'm glad you're good. I'm fine, I would say, uh, which is fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm making, I'm chugging my way through the year. But what I am happy about is that right now on my bedside table, I have a stack of books that I absolutely cannot wait to read. And do you know that feeling where they're just, I just keep looking over at them and feeling excited about what they might have in store. Yeah, that's such a good feeling. And that doesn't always happen. So yeah, that's what I'm feeling good about right now. But on to the show. Today, we're very thrilled to have two authors, Helena Lee and Will Harris. They're here to discuss Eastside Voices, a collection of essays and poems celebrating East and Southeast Asian identity in Britain, which was curated by Helena and includes a poem by Will. Featuring other writers like Mary Jean Chan, Rowan Hiseo Buchanan, and Catherine Cho, this is a collection that covers a range of experiences and settings, from the set of Harry Potter to the NHS front lines. It also seeks to combat an absence of representation in British culture, in which, to use a phrase Helena Lee borrows from Salman Rushdie, East and Southeast Asian lives are often visible but unseen. And it's a collection that seems even more important in the wake of the rise in anti-Asian hate during the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little more about Will and Helena, Octavia? I sure can, Carrie. Helena Lee is the acting deputy editor of Harper's Bazaar, where she is responsible for the publication's art and culture content. She also co-edits the annual magazine Bazaar Art, celebrating women in the art world, and launched Bazaar Art Week in 2018. In February 2020, she founded the platform Eastside Voices to raise the visibility of talent of East and Southeast Asian heritage, and is also a leader of the hashtag Stop ESEA Hate campaign, a founding member of the Ginsburg Health Board and a woman in journalism mentor. Will Harris is a writer of Chinese, Indonesian and British heritage, born and raised in London. His debut poetry book, Rendang, was published in 2020 and was a Poetry Book Society choice, shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and won the Ford Prize for Best First Collection. He co-edited the spring 2020 issue of the Poetry Review with Mary Jean Chan, and he has also published an essay, Mixed Race Superman, with Peninsula Press. Also, quick reminder that we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work we do and get extra content every month, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as a chance to suggest topics for us. Thank you with all our hearts if you support us there already. Yes, and if you don't, do it. (laughs) (laughs) You can also find a list of some of the books we talked about today on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our chats with Helena and Will and our usual reading recommendations. Uh, 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 uh. 
Helena Lee, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Eastside Voices. Do you mind setting it up for us? Yes, of course. This is um, the essay that I wrote for Eastside Voices and that touches on my own personal journey of growing up in the suburbs. My mother never told me what it was like to be like me. A BBC, not British, mind you, but British-born Chinese. My mother had a telephone voice, which was posher than her normal voice. It was the more pronounced T's and D's that gave it away. Only later, when friends would say, I didn't know your mum was foreign, meaning not from round here, did I realise that she didn't sound British. She was born in what was then Malaya in the city of Ipoh the capital of the state of Perak. Ipoh was known for two things, she said, beautiful bean sprouts and beautiful women, which seemed, although self-congratulatory, reasonable to me. The stories she wove from her childhood were threaded with the otherworldliness of the extraordinary, malevolent spirits, crocodiles, a stepfather who had supposedly been kidnapped by the Japanese occupation. But she left that all behind, when she was 20, to study in what she considered the motherland, Britain, drawn to the literature, the temperate weather and the lack of mosquitoes. I had the impression that the Malaysians loved the British, even if they were not supposed to. Yes, they might have colonised the straits, but look at the order and freedom they bestowed. China hardly got a mention, perhaps because she was several generations removed from the country. Britain, on the other hand, was seen as a place of steadfast opportunity, The British allowed her to come and live with them and she felt at home. So much so that she met a man in St Albans from another colony, Hong Kong, and married him. He became my father. No wonder she liked it here. When I was growing up, it seemed perfectly easy to be like everyone else. After all, I sounded like them in the classroom with that non-distinguishable accent that wasn't like anyone's from EastEnders or Coronation Street. I had Kiss Chase and Hopscotch Friends lived in a suburb of North London and rode hand-me-down bikes that cranked down long streets. I went to birthday parties where we jammed on hats and gloves and hacked at bars of dairy milk with knives and forks. My restaurant of choice was Pizza Hut, where I loaded up on bacon bits from the unlimited salad bar and hoped the formidably big care bears with fur, greasy from pouring toddlers, would entertain us. I read voraciously and loved traipsing down to Foyle's bookshop a place of joyful disorder, to pick up another Roald Dahl classic. I climbed trees where I could, because that was what it was to be wholesome. My mother and I would chat to the Jewish neighbours from Czechoslovakia, spend Saturdays in Brent Cross Shopping Centre, and treat ourselves to M&S prawn cocktail sandwiches at 12 o'clock. Wasn't that what it was to be British? Every now and then, something would pop this British bubble of mine, the times of inexplicable exclusion when I just didn't get the joke, like the word fart or other scatological terms that were bandied around the playground like plastic footballs. In actuality, I did know what those words meant. It's just that I knew them in Cantonese. My mother had so adopted what she saw as the British attribute of modesty that she refused to say these words in English. Thank you. Thank you, Helena. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that essay later on. But first, I just want to talk about the collection Eastside Voices, which you edited. So why did you want to put together Eastside Voices? Yes, it was um, 
mainly because I found that there was no real meaningful representation of what it was like to be me, someone who was British, someone with an East Asian background, but also Southeast Asian background. I mean, my mother's from Malaysia as well. And I personally didn't have appreciation of that difference, whether within the own microcosm of my own family or in the wider world. So for instance, when you watch the film Pitch Perfect and you have that silent Asian friend who is obviously characterized for laughs, she doesn't speak throughout the whole thing and makes strange noises. It's a terrible stereotype that's very damaging because she is one of the only examples of Asians on screen in a sort of large Hollywood film. And then, you know, there was another instance I thought of that was um, the footballer Maradona, who uh, it was during the, one of the World Cups and a group of South Korean fans had gone up to him and praised him because they were his fans. And he shook their hands and was really pleased. And then he turned around and pulled the sides of his eyes, mocking them behind their backs. And I found that that was absolutely appalling that, you know, the pundits afterwards sort of laughed it off very awkwardly, but didn't say, no, that's not on, that is racist. And it didn't seem within my own rights to be appalled by this because no one else was taking that mantle. And it wasn't on the news. It wasn't an important thing on the news agenda. You know, I wasn't seeing Asian characters on things like EastEnders or films. And so there was real, no real validation of what I was feeling. Uh, and three-dimensional characters were very scarce and just filled with stereotypes. You have the gangster, you have the wilting woman, you have no real voice. And so I really wanted a collection that I wanted to read that really reflected the multiplicity of voices of what it meant to be British, East and Southeast Asian in this country and, and to explore those multiple identities that exist here and really break down those stereotypes that exist and, and show the nuance and texture of our lives and, and show that we're not just this one monolithic voice. Yeah, and there's a really broad spectrum of experience contained within these essays and poems and everything in the book. And I wonder what the process of selecting the authors was like and how it was to edit them. Were you editing forms of writing that you maybe haven't edited before? And like, how did you choose who you included in the collection? Yes, I really wanted a diversity of voices within the collection. And I also wanted a range of subjects. You know, I wanted the nuance of family relationships, divorce, art, growing up in the suburbs, as well as the sort of big, big things like racism and, you know, experiences that aren't given much airtime. And so I, it was driven by my own curiosity, really. I wanted to learn about areas I also knew nothing about. But above all, I really wanted good writers who were able to move you with their words and possibly change the way we thought and opened our eyes. And so because it started, um, Eastside Voices started life as a salon at the Standard Hotel, where I wanted to connect an audience who might shape the world we see through media and cultural institutions. I wanted to connect them with stories from the diaspora. So the first person I reached out to talk about that was Tash Al, who immediately said yes to being interviewed on stage. And because it was the start of a really good conversation with him, because his belief in the project had been really fundamental, he also wanted to contribute an essay as well to, to this collection. And so it really started from there. And soon it was followed by the authors Rowan Hizo Buchanan and Charlene Toe, who also spoke at the salons. And I worked with each individual contributor for a long time on the subjects they wanted to write about. And it was important that the story was 
very much unique to them and and something that only they could tell because I wanted their voice to really come through. So people like June Bellabono, for instance, wrote about a spirit festival in Myanmar, something I would never have, have, have known about. And, you know, to be able to work through that with them was a real privilege. Yeah, I love this idea that you were learning things from the collection as well. And I wonder if you have any more examples of what you learned from working with these authors and reading their writing. Very much so. Um, you know, uh, I loved Anna Sulan Massing's piece on indigenous identity because her father is is Iban, an indigenous tribe from Borneo. And uh, she writes about how she assimilates in the global north. And that was really eye-opening because my mother is from Malaysia and his father is from Borneo. So they are geographically close, yet culturally so diverse. And so understanding how she navigates identity, both as someone who was from New Zealand, Borneo, and also sort of tries to fit in this idea of Asianness and how she sort of also kicks against that is really, really interesting. And in your introduction, you talk about watching a scene from Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a really racist scene in which the legendary actor Bruce Lee is mocked and humiliated. While you were thinking, wow, this is incredibly racist, the audience around you was laughing. And I remember watching that scene too and just thinking, I can't believe he can get away with this. But then... I wonder if you think that people in the UK and more generally are less willing to call out Asian stereotypes and racism because obviously that was something in a Hollywood film and he didn't really get called out on it by a lot of people, much like Maradona wasn't really called out either. No, I think there are many complex reasons why this might be. I think very often we're told not to take things so seriously, that it's just a joke. And so I think it's very much seen as not being racist, that sort of behaviour. And it's something that I know my parents would definitely have internalised, having experienced racism. When I asked my parents why they haven't challenged those terrible experiences, my parents said, well, who would have listened? Mm. And I think there, there it is. It's that sort of cycle of cultural non-representation that's really damaging, this idea that your views aren't valid. I mean, I suspect one reason people might be less willing to call out those stereotypes or, or racism is because we haven't historically had the vocabulary to talk about it. I know in the US, they are certainly ahead of the UK, I think, in terms of Asian representation, but then they have a very different relationship. You know, in, in the US, they've had the Vietnam and Korean Wars, the Exclusion Acts, and even the original term, Asian Americans, very much originally politicised, as Kathy Park Hong talks about in Minor Feelings. And so it's a different cultural context that we're talking about in America, where we might see them as being more outspoken. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I think also what I appreciated so much in your essay was the essay is titled Once Upon a Time in dot 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 Middlesex. And, you know, you're digging into your experience of growing up in, in this very sort of suburban, quote unquote, English context and understanding your relationship to your own heritage. And I found the way that you described going to Chinese school and then rejecting Chinese school and choosing to study classics when you went to university was so powerful. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your reflections on that decision to kind of turn away from something that you had been shunted towards by your family context. Yes, it was a real attempt to assimilate into 
my immediate surroundings. And it's something I think about a lot because I'm bringing up children who are both Chinese and Caucasian and trying to instill pride in all aspects of their culture or cultures, I should say. And, um, you know, when I look back, I can only appreciate my childhood in the context of my parents and what they tried to achieve and their hopes and dreams for me and also what they experienced. So I certainly didn't appreciate the fact that my mother was from Malaysia and my father was from Hong Kong, two very, very different places. Mm. I didn't appreciate how the difference between them and the fact they have different vocabularies, even though they spoke Cantonese. And so I now look back and I can't regret what I did. However, I see it with a new appreciation, understanding the, the journeys that got us here. Why did you want to focus on your mother in this essay in particular? Why was that important to you? I think it's because my, both my mother and father actually, are very humble about what they did coming over here, leaving their families, leaving the warmth of their families, even though neither of them would have had opportunities where they were just to go further in, in higher education. My mother's journey I think is incredible because she she did sacrifice a lot for the family. And I think the creation of that social warmth for me was probably very much at the expense of her own happiness and, and her own journey. So I think her own journey as a woman, as a mother, was extremely inspiring, especially now that I'm a mother and looking at sort of how difficult it is to be responsible for these lives. And so the fact that she extracted herself from something so familiar to start somewhere completely anew, having never gone abroad, having never been on a plane, and consequently finding out that she was actually quite bad at flying, <laughs> <laughs> and throwing herself into something completely new, I think is completely admirable. We were both really struck by your definition of immigration as an act of creativity, actually, and listening to you describe it there as well. It is. It's such a powerfully bold and creative thing to do. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that idea of it. I mean, do you feel that that concept of immigration as creativity is something that comes through a lot in the other pieces in the essay collection as well? I think it definitely comes across in the other pieces. You know, when I think of Amy Poon's essay, for instance, or Katie Leung, or especially Tuyen Do, who was a Vietnamese refugee and has come here and has now set up a production company and is an actor that you might have heard on Radio 4. There's a lot of bravery in throwing yourself into something where you have no idea whether you're going to succeed in that context, but you do so to find a better life and you weather the storm of racism and you you know the, the reason my mother came to this country in the first place was because the commonwealth were advertising for nurses for the nhs and so that is why my mother came over here and when i talk about immigration as being an act of creativity she is literally creating and opening herself up to the unknown she is creating those familial structures for me to grow up in for me to experience warmth and security and to hopefully thrive in. Mm. One final question for you. How did the mission of this book change as you watched the pandemic unfold? Yes, the mission initially was about 
representation uh, in the media. And I think as the pandemic unfolded and we were subject to terrible rhetoric from the likes of Donald Trump, which really aggravated the prejudice against British East and Southeast Asians. And, uh, you know, we were a lot a target of a lot of hate crimes. I think we were seeing those tangible effects of cultural non-representation. But then, you know, when I started to look at public bodies as well, East and Southeast Asians were certainly being left out of the conversations on diversity. And so East Side Voices started to work with different institutions on how we could change that and how we could start talking about that the fact that British East and Southeast Asians do enrich British culture and are part of the infrastructure. Helena Lee, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction, where I'm so glad to have read East Side Voices and to have been able to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is sponsored by Picador. We have been talking about East and Southeast Asian voices in the UK, and we wanted to draw your attention to Nima Shah's novel, Kololo Hill, which draws on her own family story and is an astonishing debut set during Idi Amin's expulsion of Ugandan Asians from Uganda. Asha and Pran have been married for a matter of months. They now have to abandon the family business that Pran has worked so hard to save. For his mother, Jaya, it means saying goodbye to the house that has been her home for decades. But violence is escalating in Kampala and people are disappearing. Will they all make it to safety in Britain and will they be given refuge if they do? And all the while, a terrible secret about the expulsion hangs over them, threatening to tear the family apart. From the green hilltops of Kampala to the terraced houses of London, Nima Shah's extraordinarily moving debut, Kololo Hill, explores what it means to leave your home behind, what it takes to start again, and the lengths some will go to to protect their loved ones. Kololo Hill is available in audio and ebook and in paperback from Waterstones, Foils, and your local independent bookshop. Will Harris, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading. Would you mind setting it up for us, please? Thanks, Carrie and Octavia. I thought I'd start with the poem, which is in East Side Voices, and it's called After the Quinine Plant. The more he thought, the more thinking itself became a source of anxiety, casting its green shade over him mid-sleep because of what he was and could not be, because of what he did not know he was. London he knew. It was the other country in him he feared, the oak tree's unseen roots whose tendrils poked out mid-speech. Did you inhale diaspora? Did you choose cliché? No, he said, not knowingly. 
The more he thought, the more things came back to him, like the myth of the great-great-grandmother who left Fujian on broken feet sometime the late Qing dynasty, the myth of the living tree divided among her children, who became many distinct seeds, that when cashed became one currency. The more he thought, the more he had to move, and soon he found himself in Beijing, expecting the thud of recognition, but as in a dream, he moved differently, walking the hutongs at night, shop after shop, different but the same. He licked toffee apples and drank bubble tea, his feet never touching real earth. The more he thought, the more names appeared. Pekembaru, Kotobaru, Chiang Mai, places whose names meant something new, and that was when he remembered the quinine plant, the poem he'd spent years writing and then abandoned. And he thought of the plant's long, waxy leaves and white, purplish flowers cultivated by the Dutch as a vaccine for malaria in the late 19th century, when his own Dutch great-great-grandfather worked at a quinine plant in Bandung. The more he thought, the more he needed to return to Peking University's gated campus, where aged five, he and his mum had lived for ten months. A guard stopped him at the gates to ask for ID, just as a man who looked like a spelt Santa Claus appeared and said he was a professor of economics. He'd vouch for him. The more he thought, the less he knew, and sitting beside the artificial lake, a part of him remembered it. 25 years before, snowed under, white as swans down, the other part connecting nothing with nothing as the sun set behind a plate of green smog. The more he thought, the more he came back to the quinine plant as a way to make sense of his parents' relationship as a kind of post-colonial romance which made him its awkward postscript. The more he thought, the less he could extract some life-saving balm from the duress of history, without which, what was the point of poetry? The more he thought, the less order took the form of words to represent the slaughter his family escaped. The more he thought of buckets of fried chicken his uncle brought back from KFC when he worked there in Anaheim in the late 90s, his cousin already speaking perfect American. He saw his uncle's sweat-stained armpits as he praised Colonel Sanders. Have more biscuit, have more gravy. The more he thought, the more he needed to purge himself through walking at night, inhaling tree pollen thrown into the air by recent rain. So he walked until his eyes were bleared, until he had to lie down on wet grass, dreaming of the pages of the quinine plant, buried in a green shade and grown tall with the blood of workers a violent plant, which occasionally bore small flowers that smelt of milk sweets and made white people salivate, though unfortunately they were poisonous. Thank you, Will. I love that ending. I wanted to start by just asking whether this was a poem that you had already written or a poem that you wrote specifically for the collection Eastside Voices. I basically did write it for the book, or I wrote it when Helena, the editor, got in touch with me and asked if I could contribute something. And I think it was only a few months after my first book had come out, maybe just a couple of months, 
And so it was in the middle of lockdown in 2020. When's that? Like a year and a half ago now. Who knows? And and I'd actually, it came at an interesting time in that I felt a real aversion to writing about East and Southeast Asian identity in Britain, which is the subtitle of the book. And I thought that anything I wrote now, I wanted to kind of move on from it because there's particularly, I think, with writers of color, you know, non-white writers in Britain, there's this expectation, particularly with your first book, that you kind of, you set out your, the kind of limits of your positionality. And I'd felt almost exhausted by doing that and by the pressures of doing that, the kind of stress about what I was including or excluding, who I was speaking for or to. And mentally, at least, I was like, for my next book, I'm just going to write about whatever I want. And it's going to be nothing to do with all these thorny and kind of poisonous words like heritage and identity and nation and race, all these things I'd spent years thinking about and trying to get my head around, which poisonous in the sense, you know, that kind of that Greek, how Derrida talks about how the pharmacon is both poison and a cure and those abstract concepts, but feel exactly like that to me. They were things which I went to for answers, but which I found incredibly frustrating and confusing as well. Anyway, all that to say, <laughs> I could probably have put that a lot shorter. I hadn't thought I was going to write about any of that stuff, but then Helena asked me to contribute to the book. And so I wrote this poem, which is kind of knotty and in third person, probably because I couldn't face writing from my own perspective about it, but which tried to express some of those feelings of wanting to escape from cliche and cliches around the diaspora, but inevitably running into them because so much of, as everyone in the book the other contributors kind of encounter in different ways so much talk around the diaspora and family the myths that get passed down are couched in cliche it's impossible to escape yeah absolutely like like the words that you just described as being poisonous that's part of their poison isn't it they flatten out something that ought to be allowed to be very very individual but i wanted to pick up on on what you were saying about using the third person here and why you chose it because a lot of the pieces in this collection are you know first person essays and it's wonderful to have, there's a couple of pieces that explore different forms of writing and yours being in its entirety a poem. And I wondered, did you think you might write an essay or did you know you wanted to respond in poetry immediately? I definitely didn't think about writing an essay. <laughs> I wrote an essay about mixed race identity a few years ago, which focused on Keanu Reeves. And that was my way of... <laughs> putting down all of the stuff I'd been thinking and feeling and researching at that time. And I've been a little bit scared in some ways to go back to it and write prose about, about it for a while, partly because I feel I'd have to do a lot more reading and a lot more thinking. Yeah, I knew I wanted to write a poem about it. And maybe all I needed was the freedom of shifting the pronouns. I had been writing a bit of, of fiction, so maybe it came out of that. I've been trying to write some short fiction. That's exciting. Well, yeah, the best thing about writing stories is that you can just write in the third person. You can say whatever you want, or it feels that way when you come from a, the perspective of writing poems where you're consciously aware all of the time about the I. Do you think of the he in this poem as separate from yourself? I think so. 
Yeah, I think I imagined him like a puppet version of me, or maybe a version of me inside of a snow globe, doing little things and going around and kind of being half controlled by me, but also moving of his own volition. Like when I shake the snow globe. I love that. Listening to you read the poem, there's this refrain throughout the more he thought. And I was wondering, was that always part of the structure when you were writing it? And why did you want this poem to be so infused with thinking? I guess, like anyone who's thought about these issues, thought about their own mixed heritage and tried to get to grips with it through talking to family members, through traveling, through reading books, you have this realization pretty early on that the more you think, the the less you know. And it probably just came from that central realization. That makes me think of something that you say at the end of your essay, Mixed Race Superman, which was published as a book by Peninsula Press, which I read when it came out and found very interesting, very much enjoyed. And uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, you, you know, just to recap, but you sort of take the figures of Keanu Reeves and Barack Obama and look into this concept of mixed race Superman sort of using them. But what I really, I found particularly, I don't know, resonant, I suppose, was at the end, towards the end of the essay, you make the point that our experience of the world is always mixed. That is marked in equal parts by recognition and incomprehension. And I wanted to ask you about that anyway, but just listening to you describe the different, you know, the thought versus feeling, it made me think of that recognition and incomprehension. (laughs) And, um, that idea that like our experience of the world is mixed regardless of our identity. And I um I wanted to ask you why you had chosen to emphasize that in the essay, but I also wondered, do you think that that same idea is folded into this poem in some way? Yeah, absolutely. I think identity is one of those words, I mean, like so many you could, that you could forget. It's not a natural thing. We're not born with an identity. We acquire it. And in some cases, and the anthology really brings it out, it's something which fits really uncomfortably. And you have to spend a long time trying to work out what it means. And you're constantly told that identity is this thing which which should make sense, that you should know, that you should feel. But often feeling doesn't tally with thinking or with the thought of others about your identity. I mean, I, I've spent ages wrangling about all these really boring conversations. Am I an English writer? Am I like an Anglo whatever writer? Am I a Chinese writer? Am I an Indonesian writer? Am I any, and I'm none of those things really, just someone who writes and I'm, my perspective, my personal heritage is made up of lots of different, even more granular identities, which can't be encapsulated by those abstract nouns anyway. Yeah, that makes me think of um, the he in this poem goes to Beijing expecting a kind of recognition and it's not really there. It's a whole poem about remaining in that uneasy space of not really recognizing anything, you know, having to come to terms with the fact that nothing feels like it is full and complete and a true expression of identity, or that's at least how I read it. That is something that happened to me. I don't just have an ancestral link to China. My, I did, like the poem says, I, I lived there when I was five because my mom was doing a mature degree in, in Chinese. And so 
in Mandarin. So for her year abroad, she took me with her and I lived in a student dorm. And so some of my earliest memories are of Beijing and of the Peking University campus. So when I went back a few years ago, I kind of imagined that I would, there would be this linking up of a circle and I would remember all these things or reconnect with it in this fulfilling, meaningful way. But as is always the case with the narratives of return, it was deeply underwhelming. But it was maybe fulfilling in a way to go back and feel that underwhelm, that lack of connection. Yeah, sometimes that can be quite oddly liberating, can't it? Yeah. <laughs> From the like the compulsion to return. I can relate to that. Everyone's probably haunted by little myths of who they are, which are linked to a specific place or time in their life. In this case, I could, when I lived in Beijing I and I was at a, a nursery there, I picked up Mandarin pretty quickly and was speaking it fluently by the time that we came back to, to London. So now when I think back on it, I was like, actually, that was one of the few times in my life in which my physical appearance, like I look Chinese and my language and every, everything kind of joined up, made sense. Mm. So that was probably part of my idealization of it. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, also just to pick up the image of roots, but in the poem, there's another poem, right? This poem contains an abandoned poem called The Quinine Plant. And it's a very evocative set of imagery that comes from that. And of course, the quinine plant would have roots and everything. But I wondered what was interesting to you about the idea of the abandoned poem within this text. I think I was mainly interested in the impossibility of writing about a lot of these these themes and of the impossibility of getting at what's important about these metaphors that's hiding behind the cliches like the metaphor of roots i think roots mean something to people family stories mean something to people but writing about them feels so mired in cliche and the quinine plant this idea of a a post-colonial poem that would make sense of all of it, all of my kind of tangled family roots, was my way of trying to get at the, the ideal poem, which I don't know how to write, but can only represent in an embedded, failed form by alluding to it. So as you were reading the rest of the collection in the context of what you'd written, did you notice correspondences between your poem and some of the other pieces and, and poetry? Yeah, very much so. I found myself really moved by reading the whole of the book in a couple of sittings. Something about the effect of, I guess, all the voices in the title, speaking from different places. Everyone has a slightly different background, different relationship to East and Southeast Asia and to themselves, to their own, their family, their parents, their bodies. And often they're quite conflicted, a lot of anger. I was really, I loved, I don't know if that's the right word, but the end of Claire Coda's piece has this incredible postscript, which I won't ruin, but which it's kind of about the relationship with her white grandmother, which I really connected with, and her attempts to try and force a neat ending on it, which don't really work out. I thought that um, the essay by Anna Sulan Masing, I Walk, I Run, I Dance into the Beyond, is incredible, really 
moving and now articulated things about mixed race identity that I've always kind of wanted to try and articulate. In particular, she talks about having indigenous um, Iban heritage. Uh, the Iban live in uh, Malaysia, in a part of Malaysia. And, and she brings together so much different work. And she has this really great line about how mobility is not the same as being adrift. And she says lots of great things, actually, about how we're kind of taught to think in these analogies of incompleteness or of fragments or of parts. But actually, you would think that maybe coming from a specific place or being a kind of particular indigenous community would give you a sense of wholeness. But actually, a lot of indigenous teaching is about movement and mobility, that that's not just a feature of being a kind of citizen of the global north. One thing I liked, and that reading a book of voices together is the little echoes between different essays or bits of writing, which don't necessarily make an argumentative sense, but create the sense of the pieces talking to each other. So in Mary Jean Chan's poem, White, she talks about English and how sometimes it feels like the best kind of evening light, and on other days it becomes something harder, like a white shield. And she says, it occurs to me now that sword and word are only one letter apart. And then much later, there's an essay by Rowan Hisayo Buchanan about naming, which is really beautiful about getting married and about the choice about whether to take on someone else's name. But she talks about samurai. Yeah, those without samurai heritage weren't allowed to bear swords or have surnames, which I didn't know. Well, what was interesting about it was putting those two things together, the idea that bearing a weapon and having a surname, which is the thing that gets passed down, are two comparable things, the sword and the word. That's a beautiful echo, and also echoes in your poem as well, with the quinine plant. Yeah, I think it's it's so fraught, actually. this Yeah, the Tash Bohr essay actually brings this out. What gets, he talks about how he went to university and he met all these, these posh people there who could trace their family back for generations and generations. And he realised then for the first time that well, how unique and specific that was to a certain kind of English or European identity. Yeah, I think in my family, we, we can do it a little bit at points with some of them. but And then in other parts, there are these big gaps. Yeah, and hearing you speak about the correspondences, but also the differences, it makes me think of what you were saying about the multiplicity of voices and what this collection does. It's It's the opposite of flattening. There are connections, but actually each piece is very different and each voice is very different and the experience of every author is unique. Yeah, it reminded me, which is, I guess, something I'm always having to remind myself, which is that race itself isn't identity. Family and place are things which are separate from this process of racialization, which is a, a deadening form of categorization, which often cuts across those more natural human bonds between family members. Yeah, and identity is something that shifts over a lifetime and can respond to its context differently. It's very malleable if you want it to be, right? Mm. It exists in opposition to those calcifying labels. Yeah. Tash Orr talks about that, how people couldn't make sense of him being Malaysian and Chinese, which is something I guess I've had a bit because I'm my mum's Chinese Indonesian. But no one no one has ever openly been confused about that, but maybe they internally have been. 
And he's had to resort to just saying to try and placate people, oh, you know, it's complicated. When in his head, he's thinking, it's not complicated. (laughs) And it's true. I guess things are complicated. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Octavia and Carrie, for having me. back here with Helena Lee and Will Harris to give our book recommendations for this month. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. Mine is a really sexy little book that I picked up when I was last in Paris called Pisti, 80 Rue de Belleville by Estelle Hoy. And um, I came across the book because I went to a reading at this fabulous publisher and bookshop called After Eight, which is in the 10th arrondissement. And Estelle was reading from this book, along with Lauren Elkin, who was reading from her book, which I also have recommended on the show before. But After Eight published Pisti, and it is honestly just like a fabulous riot. And it was just what I needed at that time. I was feeling a bit of reading malaise. (laughs) And it's a, a short, sharp affectionate ribbing of a particular kind of artsy leftist scene. And the character Pisty is appropriated from Chris Krauss's novel Torpor. And actually the book begins with an essay by Chris Krauss, which is also great. If you're a Krauss fan, I think um, this is definitely a book for you. But the the story is basically about a young academic called Elka, who's um, has a bit of a messy past and it keeps showing up in her day to day. And she collides with this woman, Pisty, who is a very charismatic, attractive, but like hard boiled and pretty infuriating Hungarian leftist activist who runs an anarchist collective in Paris on Rue de Belleville. And over one night in this apartment, this ragtag collection of old friends and lovers turn up and they discuss art and politics and polyamory and they also kind of perform these things and also really actually it's about the art of conversation and the art of discourse and Estelle Hoy describes it the author as being an exercise in not taking things too seriously in order to take them seriously which I absolutely love and I think it's actually something that Chris Krauss does in her writing as well which is why they're such a good match but yeah it's a fantastic way to describe this book because it's a book that gets into cliches and tropes that show up within any community that has a kind of singularity of purpose like the art world or the political world or the anarchist world and it gets into those cliches in a way that's very funny and very wry but it also in doing so exposes something quite kind of profound about the inherent hypocrisies in the way that we live and the way that we think and the way that we love and how hypocrisy is kind of a fundamental facet of humanity and human nature. It's a pointy little book, but it's also very generous, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And it sounds great. Yeah, it's fab. It also sounds like something you would really love. (laughs) (laughs) It made me want to move back to Paris. I can tell you that for free. (laughs) Okay. So... Will, could we have your recommendation, please? Okay. I I find it very hard to give recommendations. Every time anyone asks me, I feel like I've never read any books ever. (laughs) But one book that I have 
kept coming back to, which came out last year and was maybe hasn't got the attention it deserves, at least in the poetry world and definitely in the wider world, is a book called Ultimatum Orangutan by Kairani Baraka, who's a Javanese poet based in London. And she's an incredible writer. She writes from numerous intersecting vital perspectives about the environment, about ecological collapse, about the body, about what it means to have a disabled body and to be writing about those things. She writes about Donkey Kong and she writes about <laughs> I, I was trying to think I feel like usually you come up with like something funny as well as it's like but she does have, yeah, there is the reference to Donkey Kong as well. So it's an incredibly ambitious and exciting and wide ranging book. Yeah, I mean I, I guess like many people over the last few years been trying to think about how do you write about the impossible to imagine, which is the destruction of the world and of our ecosystems and particularly from the the global north where a lot of the devastation is kind of concealed from us and Kairani Broca's book I think finds incredible ways to do it and incredible forms lots of voices lots of languages lots of direct emotion and humor and like strange and surprising cultural references would recommend Sounds brilliant. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Thank you. Helena, could we please have your recommendation? Of course. Um, my book recommendation is Woman Eating by Claire Coder. Claire Coder is one of the contributors to Eastside Voices, and her book is coming out this June. And it's a YA novel, probably the first of its kind, in that it's about a vampire but it's a mixed-race vampire called Lydia, who is uh, part Japanese and also got Malaysian heritage as well. And so as well as sort of navigating uh, her identity as a vampire, she's also navigating more sort of cultural identity. And I love that this is sort of breaking boundaries and genres. You know, you don't usually read about mixed-race vampires. So yeah not that many (laughs) it's it's a brilliant read really fun thought-provoking and i think it's going to be big brilliant it sounds cracking it's good yeah Yeah, it's it's great it's really good (laughs) wonderful pitch so the book i want to recommend this month is four thousand weeks by Oliver Berkman, which I mentioned on our year in review as an honorable mention, but I wanted to come back to it now that I have fully finished it and loved it and give it a more fulsome recommendation because I think it's great. So this is a book that I would not normally read, as you know. It's ostensibly about time management, but what is brilliant about it is that it's actually about embracing the limits of our humanity and letting go. So that we can live a fulfilling life in whatever way that means. And the title 4,000 Weeks is the average that every human has to live, which is basically, I mean, his message is like, we don't have that much time. And if we spend our time trying to be productive, our lives will be meaningless. I mean, he doesn't write it like that. But basically, it's about letting go of like more everyday things like you know, getting your inbox to zero or being productive at all times. But 
It's more a philosophical text about the decisions that we make in our life and how we use time and why. And he's a great guide through this. He's never preachy or high-minded. You get the sense that this is really based upon his own failure to control and manage his own time in a way that felt productive. And it's very hopeful, even though it is about the shortness and unpredictability of life. It actually is very freeing to realize that we're never going to accomplish everything that we think we should and kind of living in that space rather than the space of hopes and dreams and wishes and perfection. And I would just really recommend it. I'm not sure that it gave me answers per se, but it just helped me step back and think through what I'm doing with my life and how, which I think is always important. I just love this swerve towards self-help literature. For I know, you, I'm, I I'm all it. about it now. So <laughs> about it. <laughs> I just want to understand my life and why I'm here, Octavia. Allow and... me to help you down off the high horse. It feels good down here in the mud, I promise. <laughs> um, it sounds really great. I have to say the title gives me an anxiety attack just immediately. <laughs> yeah, but then I don't you read know it how and... many weeks. I don't yeah, know. But, but, but that's the thing. Then you read it and you realize that embracing the 4,000 weeks is what you need to do. I'm here for that, for sure. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Helena Lee and Will Harris, to Daphne Carnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction. You can also get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference and it helps us reach loads of new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction.